the simulation has outrun the so-called reality. That concept in Baudrillard he called the hyper-real. Hyper-reality is more real than real, and it's built on the real. It is not as though the hyper-real could get by without injections of reality in it. If a real is disappearing, it's not because we lack of it. On the contrary, there is too much of a real. Welcome to One Dime Radio. Today, I am here with David, the host of the Theory and Philosophy podcast, which you can find on all podcast platforms as well as on his YouTube channel. David is an academic, and he does some of the most wonderful explanations of very complicated theoretical concepts. Today, we're going to be mainly discussing the theories of Jean Baudrillard, particularly that of simulacra and simulation. Baudrillard is often labeled as the high priest of postmodernism, and I thought David from Theory and Philosophy would be the perfect person to bring on this podcast because he has covered just about every single Baudrillard text, I believe, at least almost all of them on his channel, which he discusses in depth on that. I learned a lot from these podcasts myself, and I highly suggest that if you want to learn about Baudrillard's theories, you check those out. The links will be in the description. But before we get too deep into Baudrillard's theories, uh, David, would you like to introduce yourself and just what you do and what got you into Baudrillard? Yeah, sure. So I'm a doctoral student now doing my work in media studies, specifically on conspiracy theories. So not much Baudrillard figures into there. But I got into Baudrillard's work in my undergrad, uh, where I went to school at Bishop's University in Quebec, where uh, Jerry Coulter taught, who is the founder of the International Journal of Baudrillard Studies. So he obviously had an inspiration on me, including some others at that school. It was kind of an anomaly. Uh, a few profs there wrote about Baudrillard, um, which was, you don't see that very often. So that kind of got me into it. And yeah, and I, ever since then, I've had an unend unending interest in his work and how I can make it work for myself. Yeah, it's, that's one thing that's very true about Baudrillard, like you said, is that he's not studied very much in academia, despite, in my opinion, him being of a lot of importance in today's age. But um, I think it's because of his aphoristic style. He writes a little bit kind of like Nietzsche in that it's, it's very all over the place. It's not a clear, concrete argument. But I think that's what also makes him kind of fun to read, at least for me. Um, but He's definitely hard to understand for that reason, because he doesn't define the terms he says uh, a lot of the time, and he'll use terms in sometimes contradictory ways, or at least it'll appear that way. That's kind of what drove me to actually find your podcast, is I think I found your stuff about just over a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, and I was because I was just looking for secondary sources on Baudrillard to kind of understand all this stuff. And um, yeah, so those were really great. And that's what we're going to be doing today is kind of going over some associated terms. Uh, I think one of the most famous terms associated with Jean Baudrillard is that of simulacra and simulation, because that's what's often associated with the matrix. And as is widely known with most people who've at least digged a bit into Baudrillard's work is that Baudrillard did not like the movie The Matrix very much. He famously said, the matrix is the type of movie that the matrix would produce. <laughs> and um, kind of mainly because he thought that the 
binary distinction between simulation and reality was too obvious. And that for him, that kind of misses the point because for him, the distinction is not obvious at all. Um, but what, how would you define simulacrum and simulation? Because those are two things that are sometimes used interchangeably, uh, even though they sort of mean different things, even though they're associated. How would you define these two terms? Yeah, that's a good point insofar as they are often used interchangeably. And I think that there are different levels of understanding of Baudrillard's work. So you can have someone who understands Baudrillard a lot, and by virtue of that, use these terms interchangeably, or you could have somebody who doesn't understand Baudrillard at all and use these terms interchangeably. Now, the first person, the one that knows about his work a lot, uh, will have a strong theoretical basis to actually use them interchangeably. Now, in order to explain that point uh, by looking at each of the terms on their own, I think that to put it as simply as possible, simulation refers to, in Baudrillard's work, just the nature of human existence itself. So we engage in our world through uh, artifice. That is, we engage with our world through language, we engage with our world through our senses. And so we don't actually have contact with the world per se or with each other, but all of those interactions are mediated through representing machines, be it uh, our eyes or our uh, ears that just represent the world to our brains that we then make sense of, or we do so through language. So as far as we are humans, we are simulating machines to some extent. Now he's describing this situation as one in which uh, we all live. So reality for Baudrillard is very much a reality of simulation. Now he's not condemning this. He's just saying what I believe to be a fact. And of course, anyone a little bit more versed in the history of philosophy might hear some resonances with Kant's work. And Kant had a very big influence on Baudrillard, no doubt. But someone else might hear resonances of Nietzsche's work, because Nietzsche very much said, uh, the world doesn't have this thing called truth. Uh, we aren't going to find a truth in this world. All truths are going to be uh, essentially perspectival. They're going to be reduced to individuals. Each person is going to come up with their own truth. We exist in a world of, and I forget the term he uses by putting, I think it's his quote is by putting to death the artificial world, we've put to death the real world or something like that. You mean, so you mean simul- Baudrillard or Nietzsche? Uh, Nietzsche. Oh, okay. uh, and, and I so think for, that Baudrillard, he says, we put simulation or at least total, what he later calls integral simulation, integral reality is the putting death of the radical illusion of the world, right? Yep. Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. Exactly. So the simulacrum is something that I will hazard for now to say is different. And the simulacrum instead is going to correspond to a phase in which a distinction between reality and simulation, if I can say there is one, uh, becomes blurred. Now, this is a very easy way of understanding it. So we might think here of uh, digital technologies like televisions or computers, the internet, um, certain advancements in, I don't know, deep fakes or something where it becomes difficult for us to know the difference between artifice and reality. Now, that poses some issues because Baudrillard's concern is not just with the advent of new technologies. He's not just interested in 
new technologies emerging and the problems that they pose for humanity. Instead, his focus with the simulacrum is concerned instead with its gravitation towards its own perfection or perfecting mm-hmm. the world. Now, his concern is not necessarily with people spending time on the computer or watching TV. That is a part of it. Um, but his concern is, I think, more firmly against the formation of, let's say, an algorithm that can perfectly predict what might happen. So one of the ways that he illustrates this is by drawing upon film, uh, and he draws upon just Hollywood blockbusters a lot. He uses the film Minority Report, which is a movie that um, not just, I actually haven't seen the movie, but the plot the plot centers on centers on um, an organization that is able to predict when people are going to commit a murder before they've actually done it. So they're able to essentially punish them in advance. Now, this is the world that Baudrillard very much feared, a world of total control where there With is no reversibility, no reversibility. You mentioned that simulation has kind of always existed and one of the things that I think is a misconception about Baudrillard is that he's only looking at simulation and simulacrum as a, a product of technology. But um, the simulacrum, let's use that word, has existed for a very long time. Arguably, cave paintings are the first simulacrum in a certain sense because they're they're a sign that reflects something. It's just that the simula- simulacrum evolves over time. And uh, he illustrates that in multiple texts like Symbolic Exchange, illustrates the different periods of the simulacrum, the three stages. And then he looks at the four stages of the image in simulacra and simulation. And you say reality and simulation are kind of interchangeable for Baudrillard. And I remember he says in a quote that reality as we know it isn't opposed to simulation. It's merely a case of that simulation. What he's afraid of, like you're saying at the end, is a simulation that is so perfect and kind of gets rid of all reversibility. And I, here's where I like to use the word illusion, because he says in uh, The Perfect Crime that it's not, simulation isn't opposed to reality, but it's opposed to illusion. And that perf- the perfection of simulation is sort of getting rid of illusion. Illusion, I think we can look at in many different ways, but kind of like the reversibility, the possibility of possibility of kind of outside of that, maybe for simplicity's sake, simulated reality. And we can also look at illusion kind of like imagination, something that we use in our everyday lives to sort of fill the gaps of things. Uh, When we read a text, for instance, we are imagining things as well as there's simulation involved, right? There's the signs that represent certain things, but we're also at the same time imagining things. I think it's, we could say that real life, as we, in a colloquial sense, real life, as we experience it, is sort of defined both historically by simulation and illusion. What Baudrillard's afraid of is not that there is no more reality. It's merely that this simulation is realizing so much. It's an excess of reality, as he puts it, as getting rid of that illusion, that imagination. And this might be hard to kind of convey, but I I would, for me, uh, I think, there's a lot of good examples, but one could say maybe pornography is that it's like a technical perfection of simulation. It kind of removes all illusion. 
And it's kind of one of the known side effects of pornography is that people will often imagine it when they're having sex. So it's like a perfect simulation that's so, it's, I think Bodhi would say, obscene. It kind of reveals everything. There's no room for imagination whatsoever, that it kind of gets rid of that illusion. So that's more like a strong version of simulation. He's, I guess you could say, more talks about more negatively as opposed to a binary distinction between simulation and reality and that we need to go experience the real world or whatever. Because, you know, as you're saying, is, and as he says, is most of reality is sort of uh, in mix between simulation and illusion. And what he's af- afraid of is that non-contradictory, and as you cleverly use interchangeably, the non-contradictory reality and non-contradictory simulation. Um, I want, do you think I'm getting this correctly or in, do you have a better way of sort of expounding on that? No, I think that that's good. Like um, he's also very mysterious because he makes it very clear that within all of these new technologies, within all of these new developments that we come to associate with simulation or the simulacrum, he says that there is still the possibility of illusion to seep in. So in the case of pornography, the way that he imagines that or the problem that he has with it is the way in which it just sanitizes what sex is. So with pornography, like, just corresponding to the male gaze, essentially, like people aren't allowed to have hair in certain places. People aren't allowed, are supposed to like bleach their certain orifices in order to uh, fit a perfect standard, essentially turning the actors into dolls, into these perfect sanitized beings. And that that is a way by which um, our idea about sex becomes synonymous with how pornography portrays it. And that is what concerns him because it's just giving us a sanitized kind of absolutely true. uh, I use true here kind of ironically true version of sex that is just given over to uh, the image of it or the ideal of it. But he says also that at the end of that, someone might say or whisper into someone's ear, what are you doing after the orgy? What are you doing after this? And he uses that possibility or that moment to highlight that there's still that little ember of the symbolic, if I can put it that way, little element of reversibility, a little element of illusion that remains in all of this. So there are examples of, I guess, reality sticking around. But again, even in the most, what we might say- Illusion or reality? We got to be careful with our words. That's it. Even in the most- real situations. Imagine if you're dropped in the middle of the woods somewhere, the way in which you are going to respond to that situation is probably, you're probably going to mediate it through your knowledge of the woods from like film and television that -hmm. you may have seen in your life, or even the idea of there being nature of there being uh, a so-called real world is conditioned by our being only so much in proximity or so often in proximity with artifice with, you know, digital technologies and urban landscapes and, and so on. So reality is for him, as you said, not the opposite of simulation. Rather, they are two sides of the same coin. As I kind of put it earlier, whenever we engage with the world, we are engaging with representations of the world. Then we mediate our world through language, through images, through 
through writing. And we've done this for millennia. And it just seems to be part of the human condition to some extent, if I can dare say there is a human condition. The type of reality that he fears then is not the reality that permits, you know, these types of um, allows illusion to uh, exist, allows um, maybe ambiguity to exist, that allows development and change to exist. His concern is with a reality that becomes more real than real. It just stands in for everything Hyper reality. Hyper reality. And these terms go hand in hand. So he gives us another way to understand it, as you said, in the perfect crime, which was released in 91 or the at some point in the early 90s. So about 20, a little over 20 years after his first book, which is a problem because people have been reading it. Then yeah, really the perfect crime is a lot better. It's a lot better. It's just because in the first page, he kind of makes that exact distinction we're making right now. Whereas in Simulacrum Simulation, he's super ambiguous. It's hard to it's easy to think when reading Simulacra and Simulation that he's merely talking about digital technologies or like it's associating Simulacra with that. Whereas um, Perfect Crime, it's, I think it's much more to the point. Yeah, exactly. And that's where he says that reality and simulation aren't opposed to one another. They're two sides of the same coin. He, his concern is with what he calls non-contradictory simulation versus what he likes, which is conflictual simulation. Now, because reality and simulation are two sides of the same coin, the same can be applied to reality. So there is conflictual reality and non-contradictory reality. Conflictual reality and conflictual simulation are the situations in which you know change is allowed and people can engage in this thing called reversibility. And there aren't these universal equivalents that make perfect sense of anything. There isn't a kind of uh, hegemonic scientific order that says that people have to act this way, or there are these personality tests online that says you are this personality type, and then you read it and you say, oh, I must act like this. This is who I'm supposed to be. That is non-contradictory reality or non-contradictory simulation, which is what concerns him. Not the conflictual kind where none of that None of that exists and people just exist in what he calls their, their singularities. They exist just in themselves. They exist in their communities and those communities are perfect. You don't have, um, you don't have hegemonic, uh, you know, uh, global powers saying how certain people should live, what per- certain people should do with their bodies or how to control them or anything, or you don't have the logics of capital just subsuming any, everything under its logic or just spreading its tentacles all throughout the globe to make um, everyone submit to it essentially. So there's that distinction there that, that I think um, he was very much misguided to wait 20 some years to explain it in the, in the early nineties. Yeah. I think one, one term that's might clarify this for people, but is because is reality and a lot of the way the way people often think about reality is in a very scientific sense. The re- reality is just what exists, but that's not so much how Baudrillard is using it. I think we can maybe differentiate just to make things easier. Reality from the capital R real, right? We can say the real, um, maybe like the thing in itself, maybe in a Kantian sense, right? The thing that just absolutely exists, but 
the way Baudrillard is talking about reality is more in a practical cultural sense in that what we perceive in our part of rea- in our reality, in our perception of our subjectivity, it's for something to be in our reality it has to be codified. It has to be quantified and represented by signs, images, language, etc. For example, like if we go out into the wilderness, we there's only so much we will know about certain plants. We might have names for these plants, names for these colors, but for the things that we don't have any signs to reflect, they don't really, they're not real in our sense of reality because they haven't been codified in that. They're sort of that unknown, but everything that is sort of put into signs is part of that reality. So that's kind of why I think he uses simulation and reality interchangeably and the non-conflictual reality slash non-conflictual simulation is when that illusion, that little unknown, that possibility for reversibility put to death by injecting reality onto it, by realizing everything. But this is where Baudrillard's kind of contradictory, and I find this really interesting, is that while there's this propensity to always realize everything, put everything to codify everything, to put everything into existence, to realize all possibilities, desires, there's still that unknown that reversibility that always will exist. And I think in The Perfect Crime, he says the radical illusion of the earth can never be extinguished. It can never be fully put to death. It's uh, it's impossible to get rid of, basically. It'll always, some level of it will exist. It, in fact, needs, so-called reality needs a bit of this to maintain itself, because he's, I think he says also in uh, Perfect Crime in a kind of dramatic way that if there was no illusion. And if everything was realized, the world would, as we know it would end. And I think it's sort of provocative and not I'm saying in a literal sense, I think he means metaphysically that makes sense at all. But I think, I think for a, just practicality's sake, I think a way to explain how he differentiates reality, simulation and illusion is the way we use these terms already in a practical basis. Have you ever wondered how when you question anything outside of the political system, anything that is possible that isn't neoliberalism or whatever the status quo is, you'll often have the centrist, square-headed response that's like, you're, you're not realistic. You're not being realistic. You need to think in reality. Oh, you need to be more grounded in reality. And that reality isn't necessarily... What is this say that that reality is just the limitation of all possibilities beyond what it codifies, what it what it puts in that reality. So, for example, like we look at our even though there are political systems are run by all kind of voodoo, right? We we have we believe in certain economic theories that don't hold up at all, like trickle down economics, uh, whatnot. We believe in things like the deficit which uh, people who will see my next video will notice is completely nonsense. Uh, But it's our reality nonetheless, right? And things, we need that illusion to kind of help reverse that to a certain extent. Um, But to distinguish a a reality and illusion is we look at the, no matter how ludicrous it might be, or what exists in our system or whatnot is reality. How we experience life on an everyday basis. I don't know, going to the same office job nine to five, that's reality. But how how come in a lot of films, movies, or the way we refer to things like something like nature, people will refer it in a super mystical sense. They'll look at a forest, uh, an interesting forest, and they'll say, oh, it's so mystical. It's so 
strange, even though nature or quote unquote, or forest is just as in a scientific sense as real, a capital R is anything can get, right? That exists prior to humans. But we look at that as kind of strange because anything that is kind of unknown and not codified by reality is outside of it. At least that's some way I like to think of illusion and reality is because illusion requires imagination and it's there's always an unknown. There's a lot of it is unknown. Uh, it's not objective, whereas reality is something we can objectify. We can see, we can define. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of the one of the things that he draws upon or <laughs> to illustrate this in um, in seduction, the book seduction is uh, astrology. And he says that he doesn't uh, bemoan or look down upon people who do astrology. He says that there's a lot of meaning to be taken from the stars. Now, this is not, I mean, I mean this to bar, you know, the types of astrology that are peddled by, I don't know, Gwyneth Paltrow or some, I, you know, some basic um, astrology stuff that just regurgitates the same scripts over and over again. But Baudrillard says that that is just one example of us as humans opposing certain logics of um, quantification, of empiricism, efforts to make the world totally understandable and graspable. Now, you also said, uh, and I think that you're right about this, this um, centrist imperative to gravitate everybody or to make everyone gravitate towards that center position because as you said, uh, they associate it with reality. But this reality is very much founded upon um, falsity, like the the very logics of capital just don't hold up very well to uh, any kind of scrutiny. How is it that more and more value can be extracted from from labor uh, while that labor is constantly being devalued? It is not sustainable. There's no real... Uh, logical basis for it, yet it persists. And this demonstrates that there isn't necessarily um, a legitimate basis for the formation of any given uh, simulacrum in terms of like uh, institutions. So in this case, capital, there doesn't need to necessarily be a legitimating basis for that all there needs to be is power. There needs to be a certain um, a certain will behind it to try to extend its logic as far as it can go. Now, this shows that there doesn't, for Baudrillard, like I think, uh, it doesn't need to have um, any kind of logical basis. It can just attain its status by existing and existing forcefully, just as the logic of of capital does. So that shows that even in the most perfect of worlds, it might be an absolutely perfect world founded on imperfection, founded on imperfect logic, you know, if we're looking at it from the outside looking in. And that really, and I think Baudrillard is very much aware of that, how we are living a very absurd existence and how we are living uh, in a world that just doesn't make sense. And that makes it all the more ironic that we are trying to make sense of this world. And the world is always going to be, it will always escape us trying to give it um, meaning. But you also said, or you presented just kind of briefly, the threat 
of exist the existential risk that he um, sort of humorously points to by saying that when the world has been perfectly understood, when the world has attained this, what he calls in the late work, uh, integral reality, when the simulacrum reaches its Mm -hmm. apex, then the world will come to an end. And what he means by that is that the symbolic world will in a sense come to an end. People may not die. The world will keep revolving around the sun, but everything that we would traditionally associate with reality or the world, that is um, a world of ambiguity and illusion and mystery. As soon as all that comes to an end, then we'll just be non-autonomous robots living a completely determined existence, which will be the essentially a living death. And it is in that way we will live a kind of... um, we won't be the world anymore. The world will have come to an end. I think there's a great quote in the intelligence of evil, which illustrates exactly that. Um, I, literally on the first page, on the first line of the uh, chapter, integral reality, where he says, what I call integral reality is um, an unlimited operational project whereby, okay, here it is, whereby everything becomes real. Everything becomes visible and transparent. Everything is liberated. Everything comes to fruition and has a meaning. Whereas it's in the nature of meaning that not everything has it. And I think that's really interesting because, and he also says this in another lecture, which one can find on YouTube called The Murder of the Real, where, for example, if for something to have meaning, something has to not have meaning, or else how else do you distinguish it? And for something to be real, something has to not be real. But if everything is quantified, everything is realized, and there's no less and less room for illusion, the real itself doesn't exist anymore. It's meaningless. It kind of disappears. Now, he has another line on here, which I think is interesting to unpack, where he says, the disappearance of God has left us facing reality and the ideal prospect of transforming the real world. And we have found ourselves confronted with the undertaking of realizing the world, making it become technically integrally real. Now the world, even freed from all illusion, does not lend itself to reality. Now these can looked at, be looked at as very contradictory statements. And I'd like to see how you unpack that. But I'll, I'll tell you what my interpretation is first, is as we were saying earlier, simulation has kind of always existed. Um, and la- real life as we know it has sort of been a mix of trying to quantify reality via representation and simulacrum, as well as illusion, which we used to kind of fill the gaps and imagine the possibilities, right? So, you know, when we have the uh, astrology or have maybe certain religious traditions, it's a form of illusion, which we kind of use to give us meaning, but it's not something that's yet quantified. Whereas you can call, I, I think, state religion a simulacra in the sense that it's quantified. God is given an image. He's given, uh, Jesus is given an image. Um, We're given the Bible. We're given these texts to kind of put this into existence, but there's still uh, the aspect of illusion. Now with the death of God, we get science. So that's what I think he means by with the death of God left us just with reality in the sense that we're left with trying to simulate the real world, so to speak. And that uh, we can look at this starting with the classical age and um, 
the birth of the Enlightenment, the Copernican Revolution, trying to really understand the quote-unquote real world. Taken to its conclusion, we have to try to quantify everything. We have to understand everything. But Baudrillard says this is impossible. And what comes with the realization of everything, especially with now modern technology, the ability to film everything, to get everything on display, to, for lack of a better term, codify everything, um, that itself murders the real. Now, this is this is probably very contradictory, right? Because he's saying there's too much reality. There's an excess of reality. But that reality is disappearing. How do you explain that? Yeah, by appealing to the two different kinds of reality. So there is conflictual reality. That's the good kind. That's disappearing in favor of non-contradictory or non-conflictual reality being left in its stead. The type of reality that seeks to absolutely explain everything in the material world and to make us believe that whatever solutions it has come up with, whatever uh, hegemonic order tells us we need to believe, be it trickle-down economics or be it uh, belief that there is some kind of biological truth, truth to gender, whatever, you know, whatever uh, absolute truth you want to stick in here. Then when we have completely swallowed that, we have moved away from conflictual reality into non-contradictory, which is why I think like um, it's very important to get, have a grasp of these this difference between these two kinds of reality when reading his work, because otherwise it'd be like, well, He's just contradicting him, contradicting himself. There's no, this makes no sense. What, could, uh, could we what, use hyper-reality as non-conflictual reality? Just, I think that's so. the more popular term. I, like that's what often secondary sources like to usually use. They don't use the term non-conflictual reality often, probably just because he doesn't introduce that until much later in his work. But hyper, what, could we just call non-conflictual reality hyper-reality? I think so. Um I think so. And I think that one of the reasons that that is the case is just because it is the more popular term. It does make sense. It does clear clear up some of those issues. But at the same time, it risks because he doesn't always use that term in his work. So if you just approach it, knowing the word hyper reality, if you go and read his stuff, he's not always going to be using that word to describe the bad kind of reality. So it's just important to have a grasp of, of that as well. But I do think hyperreality can be used sort of as a synonym for this because what is hyperreality is uh, he defines in simulacrum simulation as being more real than the real. And it's it, because mainly it's just it's more real than the quote unquote real life could ever be because real life has simulation to an extent because we you use language, we have pictures, we've always used these things, but there's always that illusion which we use to kind of fill the gaps. When things are more real than the real, it kind of realizes all that which was once left to illusion and i think an example i like to think of for hyper reality there's so many but how good pictures are nowadays if you've seen like the super high quality cameras they're able to take these pictures which you'll look at them you almost think like the pictures are edited but oftentimes they don't have to be if you just take a picture with a really high quality camera it captures way more of that whatever you're taking a picture of than the human eye could ever encapsulate like we'll we'll see things in real life but then we'll take it with like a super high quality camera it looks way better it's like more real than the real and that's i think because what was left to illusion when we're looking at things in real life we're not fully seeing everything i, I the way i make sense of this is just in a kantian sense and that there's 
sort of the noumenal world we can never fully comprehend that is outside human perception. And um, I see that hyperreality, it kind of captures more what is left to imagination. That makes sense. So how does that tie into integral reality? Yeah, that makes sense. But also remember, Baudrillard was a prolific photographer and he wrote, and it's, he wrote very little about photography, but there's this one essay in, I believe it's in Impossible Exchange, but it could be in The Illusion of the End, but it's called Photography or The End of Light Writing or Light Writing, something like that, in which he says that photography is actually a way to capture the, um, just that illusion. It is a way to demonstrate that the world is, that's all it is, is it's, it's just illusion where you can capture it and someone won't know if they're looking at the real thing or if they're looking at an image, as you said, like mm-hmm. photography can be, and it has been for a long time, uh, it can be difficult to distinguish between the so-called real, that is the world that we, when we look outdoors and we're looking at, uh, there's that world, but then there's that world represented in uh, on the internet or in photography or whatever. And that shows just to that what extent that world is a fabrication. It is just part of our own, essentially our imaginations, our, our, our senses give it meaning, you know, our eyes understand the world for us. And that is the case, whether or not we're looking at that world through a perfect image or through the world itself. And this dovetails with a pretty obscure text of his called, um, it is actually building off the work of Sophie Cal. I think that's how you pronounce it. It was a French, um, I think she was a photographer. She's she's a French writer. But in this short text called Please Follow Me, Baudrillard reflects on the experiences of Sophie Cal, where Sophie Cal followed a man all around Europe and like taking pictures of him. It was very creepy. Like it's as creepy as you're imagining it now, like that it is that creepy. So she yeah. followed this man around and it's called Please Follow Me. And Baudrillard found this super interesting. And he used that story essentially to demonstrate what this that signifies to follow somebody. And when you're following somebody, what you are essentially doing is you are demonstrating that no one's path is their own. It could easily be copied. It could easily be um, simulated to some extent. And this kind of idea we have about uh, autonomy, about your um, own individual relationship with the world can so easily be overturned uh, just by this demonstration that he reflects upon of following somebody else. So by capturing the world, by following someone else, what we are doing is showing that no person, no the world isn't like a thing that stands outside of the world of representation because it can be so easily captured and, and duplicated. It can be repeated. And so that for him takes it outside of having any kind of, uh, any kind of transcendence, you know, existing above anything else. We are all just at the whims of this thing called reality and the problem for him as, um, we've, you know, been going back and forth on, uh, is with the kind of reality that puts that possibility to death to say that, nope, this is the world we've, uh, we've completely figured it out. 
Uh, we've put our stamp on it. We can wipe our hands and go away if you don't like it. Um, we'll incarcerate you. We'll put you to death. Whatever we'll do. And uh, and yeah, that'll be it. Right. Um, we you mentioned at the start that about about photography being able to capture illusion, but if one captures that illusion via photography, does it not then bring it into reality? Because it's that's now effectively simulated. Well, that's part of the mystery, isn't it? Um, as far as Baudrillard's work is concerned. And this is what I meant at the very beginning when I said that you can be very well versed in his thought and use terms like simulation and reality, simulation and the simulacrum, reality and the simulacrum. You can use those terms interchangeably with somebody else who really knows this stuff and they'll know why you're using these terms interchangeably. Or you could be someone that doesn't know a whole lot, use the terms interchangeably with someone who knows the terms a whole lot. And that person might say, well, yeah, I think that you are just confused, which is part of the mystery. And I think that he tried to foster this mystery in his own work in order to be the demonstration of exactly what he wanted the world to be like, a world that is contradictory, a world that is ambiguous, a world that is um, unknowable. It's very difficult to situate Baudrillard and to make sense of his work. And he does this quite strategically, I'd think. Um, I think in part- Derrida made me think of, but that's another story, but kind of, he conducts his project a bit like Derrida, like he lives his philosophy, if that makes sense. I think so. I think so. And I believe it was uh, Mike Gain, who's one of translators of Baudrillard's works. Mike Gain also collected- Mike Gain compiled the first big collection of Baudrillard's interviews. I think it was called the Baudrillard Live, I think. Um, Anyways, yeah, I collected a bunch of his interviews. But Mike Gain said that Baudrillard very much lived the type of life that like Deleuze and Guattari wrote about, very rhizomatic, um, opposing certain logics of, of capture that would seek only to codify, to quantify things to typify them. He really evaded all of that. He didn't fit in very well in the whole French philosophy scene. He didn't really fit very well in the US. Um, It was only people a little bit later in his career kind of took him up. Uh, He spent a lot of time traveling. He loved to do photography. Um, And for those reasons, he was very much, I think, living out this this life that he thought was that made sense to him a life that just avoided this easy um avoiding being put into these boxes yeah he really is the high priest of postmodernism isn't he i think <laughs> i think it's fair to give him that label um for regarding simul- uh, simulacra and simulation just for the audience though i think an easy way to kind of understand that is that yeah like sim- simulacrum is sort of that representation of something you know a copy of something and it evolves obviously in stages right it can there's, there can be simulacrum that has a referent which is more like older type of simulacrum cave paintings as a representation of something uh, a sculpture perhaps or even a direct photograph and then there's simula- simulacrum with ha- which have zero reference that only reference other simulation simulacrum and something he kind of associates quite heavily with uh, sort of the realm of hyperreality. Regarding simulation, I think it's just like the process by which simulacrum or simulacra plural occur. 
I think it's it's an e- easy way to under sort of understand that it's sort of the process of it. So it's I think that's why a lot of people use it interchangeably. Yeah, I think so. I think that that's fair. Um, it is the short answer is to say that it's a copy of a copy. It is when it is when Xerox is introduced, and now any attachment to the origin is completely lost. Uh, the only issue there is you can be led astray when reading Baudrillard's work to think that oh well, underneath all of the simulacrum or simulacra, there's there's truth, and all we need to do is we need to put aside the television and the, the internet <laughs> and the phone yeah, exactly. and photography, and then we're going to be left with truth. That that doesn't exist. There is nothing there. Uh, all you will find is just even in the if you throw yourself in the densest forest in the middle of nowhere with no attachment at all uh, to anything electronic, anything digital, anything simulated. Let's say you're staring at a tree. You are engaging with a representation, a simulation of that tree. Just because not only is your history going to influence the way that you understand that tree, a history that was simulated, you know, a history that Mm -hmm. you lived being living in a world that fed you ideas. So ideology, discourse, all these things are going to influence your interpretation of that tree. But even in the most rudimentary way, looking at the tree is just your eyes getting sense data from the light reflecting off of it, which then your brain make sense of. You don't actually see the tree, right? Hence yes. the Kant stuff. Uh, so yes to what you said, but also it's important to acknowledge that there is no like re- truth underneath yeah. all the copies of copies. But this brings me to my, to my next point, but to further illustrate what you're just saying is I think a good way to think of it is if one just observes nature in the forest. They, let's look at, I don't know, a certain uh, tree. Is that tree a tree if you take away that language, right? Is the tree is merely the sign we give to that? And we have all our uh, signs that we use to kind of give that tree a purpose and what that is, as opposed to just you just purely look at it. It just is what it is. The sign is what we, we call it a tree. Or if, let's say, we look at the colors of things, green is a, a color and we can only differentiate what green is by seeing what blue is and what red is, what isn't green. They're all signs. If we are to get rid of all these things, there isn't like a quote unquote, like truth. It just is there. That makes sense. It's just like you said, um, our eyes looking at something and giving us uh, sense data through the reflection of the light. And um, the, the thing though about there not being a truth underneath the simulacrum can be confusing for some. And Baudrillard has the quote where he says, it's dangerous to unmask images because we will reveal that there's nothing behind them. And in the, the first page of Simulacrum and Simulation, he has a quote, which isn't his, it's from Ecclesiastes. And it's a quote that's often used in a lot of memes and sometimes falsely attributed to Baudrillard, uh, ironically. Uh, but so the the simulacrum is not but it's fault it's, it, it's not a it, true ecclesiastes quote either yeah like he said he like didn't he, some, he said that in an interview that he like just made it up yeah yeah i find that interesting but it still illustrates his point that's what i'm about to say is the simulacrum is not what hides the truth it's the truth that hides the fact that there is none the simulacrum is true and that's even though it's like kind of just like he just made it up it point it does illustrate his point 
in the sense that the simulacrum is not hiding a truth. It kind of creates that truth. It creates that reality as we know it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, for sure. I think so. Like, and, and this is the image of the map that he gives us at the beginning of simulacrum simulation from Borgia's fable, where the map completely covers the territory to the point that the map is indistinguishable from the territory. This now, this still might sound like make some heads explode. It made my head explode for like months, <laughs> just because like it kind of flips everybody's conception of reality on its head. But there's some other quotes where I think he illustrates this kind of well, and that he says on multiple occasions in uh, the intelligence of evil that reality has barely had time to exist. The reality is a new thing, and he says reality that has the reality that has invented itself over recent centuries and which we have elevated into a principle is now dying out to which to revive it at all cost as a reference or a moral value is a mistake since the principle is dead now this brings me to my next question is the difference between the reality and reality principle because he kind of indicates that reality as we know it Ali says we colloquially discuss it is sort of a recent phenomena. And when he says recent centuries, what I assume he is referring to is the enlightenment and that we kind of, this idea of reality, uh, sort of the idea that of finding a quote unquote real world, giving meaning, injecting reality into the unknown and giving meaning to these things, realizing all of these things, which were once left to illusion. That's what he means by, I think reality invented over recent centuries or one could say maybe before with uh, i guess you could say state religion but then he but he says the death of god left us with reality so i i think he's referring a bit to the enlightenment and that this so-called reality as we know it being a, a new thing because if you think about it let's let, let's take uh as problematic as this can be but let, let's take like a caveman or i don't know a tribe that is pre-civilization do they walk around thinking about, oh, like this is reality or, oh, we're living in reality. This is reality. This is not reality. No, they just like live. If that makes sense. The distinction between reality and not reality is this idea that there can be a reality and codify things and put it into this existence. And that's why I think he uses simulation so interchangeably uh, with reality. But he uses this term reality in differently from the reality principle and in that quote i just read where he says reality has barely had two time to exist but it's disappearing because its principle is dead what is the difference between the reality principle and reality as such for baudrillard well to hazard a guess uh that would also inform or that approach also informs his criticisms of marx and freud both of whom sought to find so-called truth of uh, human existence. So Freud attributed to the psyche that housed all of, was essentially the, uh, was a gold mine to understand humanity. And then he's, his criticism of Marx, notably this idea of arriving at scientific socialism that I think Baudrillard un, uh, believed Marx uncritically adopted or believed in because it's just a, just harkens to this idea of, empiricism, irrationalism, materialism, that will try to put all the illusions of the world to death. Uh, you know, religion is the opium of the people, so on and so forth. So the reality principle corresponds to these logics, these efforts to 
understand the world as embodying a truth or having a truth and then making that truth applicable to virtually everyone like Freud. And, you know, we have this idea of the id, ego and superego essentially guiding everyone's impulses or the uh, eros, the life drive versus uh, thanatos, the death drive. And we can explain away all human interactions based off of that or with Marx, we can explain it away based off economic conditions, whatever. Um, and Baudrillard was just dissatisfied with such approaches just because they limit everything. That is, they put into practice this idea that there is a truth to reality, and they just take it all the way with this uh, guiding principle. Um, yeah, I don't know if that makes it clearer at all. Yes. Uh, no, I, I saw that too, in that sense that, um, well, Marx and Freud are both products of the Enlightenment as well, of course, and uh, along with liberal thinkers being also different products of the Enlightenment. Um, I think this could be confusing because one would see that read into this, maybe say, what is the use of Baudrillard? And to me, I, I see him kind of the way I see a lot of other postmodern thinkers like Derrida or Foucault, in that I, I see them more not so much as a prescriptive value, but rather that they can kind of act as that illusion, as that reversibility to kind of question what we take for granted. Yeah, I think so. And he's he sits very comfortably as well in that camp of critique, um, committing himself very much to critique, to throwing thought grenades, not necessarily providing us a roadmap of what necessarily to do, but pointing to the limits of any one given school of thought, be it uh, Marxism, be it psychoanalysis and so on. Regarding what you were saying uh, before, I think it's important to clarify again, just about the reality principle, because that and how it differs from quote unquote reality, I think is something interesting and worth interrogating a bit. Now, I want to read a couple of quotes from Baudrillard that discuss this, and I want to see how you interpret them. Um, in Intelligence of Evil, he says, let us be clear about this. When we say reality has disappeared, the point is that it has not disappeared physically, but that it has disappeared metaphysically. Reality continues to exist. It is its principle that is dead. Uh, and in here he says, we invested reality with the whole of our imaginary, but it is this imaginary that is vanishing since we no longer have the energy to believe in it. Even the will has gone out of it. The passion for reality and the passion for truth have gone. All that remains is a duty of reality. Henceforth, we must believe in it, as doubt sets in everywhere as a product of the failure of systems of representation. Reality becomes an absurd imperative. It is the excess of reality that makes us stop believing in it. If the real is disappearing, it's not because we lack of it. On the contrary, there is too much of the real. Now, the way I see this is sort of that when everything becomes realized and there's less illusion left, um, what he's saying, the death of reality is the death of, like you were saying before, the, the, the so-called good kind of reality, the non-conflictual reality. And we get this, sorry, the death of the conflictual reality, uh, the reversible one. And what we get is this non-conflictual reality, but it is in the nature of meaning and the nature of reality that there is something that is not, right, to differentiate that. So when all there is, is everything becomes realized, the rever without the illusion, reality as we know it, that has existed 
can no longer really exist. This is still, it's, it's hard to kind of encompass. How would you explain the differentiation between the reality principle and reality and those quotes I just laid out? Uh, yeah, in terms of the reality principle, it's a good po- or good question. I've never actually thought about it, but what I would say is that insofar as principles are going to describe um, efforts to, I guess, make things completely intelligible, uh, it's going to oppose those attempts, those efforts to make things fully understandable or graspable. Um, and so long as that reality is in play, that principle uh, is in play, it's going to pose problems for us forming any kind of meaningful uh, beliefs in the world that oppose those logics. And so while reality is going to exist still, this, as the reality is we've been laying it out, this uh, conflictual reality, the very principle that is the problem that tries to make the world fully understandable, fully graspable will come to an end. And that's a, kind of a the good thing for him. Um, yeah. And what was the second part? Um, the excess of reality makes us stop believing in it. And what we're left with is the death of the reality principle and only a duty of reality, sort of like the duty of, for example, like when uh, he also compares us to God, like when we have to believe in God, it already disappears. Yeah. In the sense that, uh, if we have to believe in reality, don't you believe in the truth? And the way I like to think about this is, don't you believe in science? Yeah. We hear that a lot. Um, it, it already disappears. I think that's what he's saying, but I, I think it, it's still, I, I have to have trouble kind of grappling with that. Well, the easy, the easy answer might be that reality as a conflictual thing starts to go away when there's an excess of reality, when excess, when reality becomes more real than real, when it becomes hyper real, then the very idea of reality as something that opens or welcomes change and development will start to go away. Uh, so we can mean it, we can understand it in that way. But another way that we can approach it is that as the world grows more perfect, as it becomes more understandable and graspable, so too does the capacity to see the absurdity behind it all. So like photography, like to go back to that, even if you have a perfect image, that perfect image is going to demonstrate just how even something perfect can be a replication. It is, it is, it is not real. So I actually brought up, um, I found that quote or I found that essay and he says right off the bat in that essay, or starts like this, The miracle of the photograph of that allegedly objective image is that through it, the world shows itself to be radically non-objective. That's just the first line there. And I think that it's in that way that an excess of reality actually undoes that very reality. And this also corresponds to another way to understand reversibility in his work, where if anything becomes uh, or if anyone attains power, or if anything becomes too perfect, it will welcome its own undoing, its own um, reversal will just be implied within it. And any other effort to oppose it is just going to be consumed into its logic. It needs to, everything needs to run its course for Baudrillard to some extent. And that just happens by the very 
um, impossibility of maintaining perfection or maintaining power. Uh, and I'm, I'm drawing upon a number of his texts here, so I could be leading us astray, but I think that that might address your question. The way I like to apply it kind of in, in the real world is let, let's think of science. Okay. So with science, we have supposedly gotten so perfect at determining objective facts, so to speak, uh, with greater technology, greater research methodology, greater discoveries, uh, and all that. And I think you could see at the high point, something like genomics, where we can detect cancerous genes already from birth, stuff like that. Like we're supposedly advancing so much in science, but at the same time, and this is not me trying to be like a anti-science, whatever. But th the point being is that, okay, as stuff gets more perfect, we also start to see anything that kind of undermines that perfection, cracks it even more. The way I like to look at this as uh, the more faith we're supposed to have in science of getting perfect, if there's anything that merely contradicts it a little bit, it puts a hole in the whole thing. And then you'll have doubts spread everywhere. I think we can see this most potently with something like the coronavirus, because as science is supposed to get so perfect at predicting, right? We've seen numerous predictions that COVID would be over within the first few months, then after a year, then we're still here, right? Our predictions continue to be wrong. And I think that's why you have a lot of anti-vaxxers. You have people who become very, very critical because they see one little contradiction and then they they don't believe in the whole the thing at all. So the response is often from the the you know the liberal liberal media or whatever centrist media whatever wants to call it will respond kind of by saying don't you believe in science? And it's like there's almost this moral duty to believe in science. Like don't you believe in God? You're questioning God, you know. And when once you have to do this, it's kind of already disappeared. Um, it's because the the principle is dead, and you have to kind of uphold it through this moral obligation. This is not me kind of, you know, necessarily condoning the anti-vaxxers, but what I would say is people have a right to be critical where I think people go wrong. The anti-vaxxers is they sort of inject their own reality sometimes in, in the form of conspiracy theories. So they'll kind of inject their reality by saying, oh, it's part of a new world order conspiracy. It's part of this population control or whatever, trying to kill people, uh, whatever, microchip your brain, <laughs> who, who knows? But I think people like the the fact that people are critical of science is inevitable because even people within science are becoming critical of science in the sense that there's uh i have i have various friends who study in the fields of biology and chemistry and one thing i i keep hearing is that there's a replication crisis is that there's a problem with trying to replicate certain studies and as we know it requires replication to get any so-called objective findings that we can't really infer a objective truth from a study or an objective finding without it being replicatable. So with that, with a replication crisis, there's more and more doubts at season. As a system gets more perfect at trying to find answers to everything, it crumbles on its own weight because any little cracks it has, any little mishaps, it'll kind of set even more doubts on it. I don't know if that is a good way to make sense of it. But that's kind of how I see this playing out in the real world. I think another example actually is, is Trump. See, Trump kind of, we always knew that politicians always lied, right? We, we can say we know this. Trump came in there, kind of completely blurred the boundary completely. He just, you know, unrelentlessly bullshitted. Um, now you have 
with that, people are saying, oh, Trump brought in post-truth era or whatever. Trump uh, destroyed our notion of truth. And you have Biden coming after kind of trying to not so much revive truth, so to speak, because, you know, it's not like he doesn't lie. It's not like he's not just another politician. He comes in there and tries to revive the reality truth principle by saying, oh, we believe in science. We believe in facts. And it's like this moral obligation that he's trying to resurrect, but it doesn't really work because the doubt is still there. And the fact that he has to even use it as a moral principle means that the foundation of the reality principle has died. Uh, I don't know if I'm grasping this or completely off. What do you think? No, I, I, I agree. I think that that's totally fair. This whole Trump thing is utilized certainly by people on the left, um, despite the fact that they are very much legitimate in their criticisms, but they use it as a way to say like, oh, we are legitimate because we are not them who are illegitimate. When in fact, still, as you said earlier, you know, these logics of, of capitalism, for instance, are remain unquestioned. Uh, so we see, and this is just one way that we kind of absolve ourselves of having to actually consider these things because we say, oh, the crazy people are over here. Um, it's obviously a charge term, but people who are, uh, you know, politically different than us are over there and they're the ones we associate with falsity with untruth and so on. Uh, so therefore we are the good ones. And in Baudrillard's, you know, Baudrillard's works, it's just about talking about um, like Disneyland or uses it, uses Disneyland to think about that where we, when we're at Disneyland or we use the image of Disneyland to say that the rest of America is real because that's, what's fake. Disneyland is fake. It's cartoonish. Everything else is legit when that's like absolutely not the case. Um, but yeah, no, all this to say, I, I agree. Yeah. And you mentioned the Disneyland in the same text, Simulacra and Simulation. He also mentions Watergate, um, with, uh, Richard Nixon and that sort of, sort of that scandal about Watergate and all the outrage it spawned in the media sort of reinforced the myth, the, or reality principle that, um, everything is otherwise normal in the political system politicians aren't corrupt and that somehow Richard Nixon's Watergate scandal was outside of the norm. And it kind of reinforced the system's sort of um, reality, I'll call it. Um, Trump, to a certain extent, does the same thing. Although I think when we're, what differentiates the Trump era from the Nixon era is I think the reality principles is dead in the Trump uh, era. Because I think in the Nixon era, there was still sort of there is still such outrage about like the Watergate scandals or when politicians are lying and then we can just go back to normal. And there's this attempt to, with the Democrats to kind of act like Trump is something out of the ordinary. But I think Trump was such a product of what was already happening gradually, right? We had Reagan, like a hyper real president who was literally an actor. <laughs> and uh, we had George Bush who, you know, they openly lied about weapons of mass destruction. I think people have been doubting the system for quite a long time. And with Trump, he just kind of, he isn't masking the absence of some sort of truth. Trump was, I think, was usually open about it in the sense that he would be like, oh, we, uh, we want to go to, we, we went to Iraq because we wanted to take their oil. <laughs> it's like why why do we how do we do trade with saudi arabia oil he's this transparent 
right? And then you have the attempt with the Biden administration, or you you see Trump's uh, whatever her name is, a secret press secretary or something, who said we have alternative facts, right? Which is like kind of Ke- always Kellyanne like, Conway, yeah, yeah, yeah. And whereas you see with the Biden administration, it's sort of this attempt to revive truth, so to speak, to revive it as a principle. But I think the doubt is set so deep that the Trump no longer can reinforce the system's reality principle like the Nixon Watergate scandal did. I think by at this point, the reality principle is just we are we only have like a duty to sort of believe in uh like the functioning of the system. We have a duty to believe in truth. We have a duty to believe in science, whatnot. I think that, that I, that's at least where that text and that point of Baudrillard really resonated is, especially because I was reading it during COVID, it made sense, or at least that's how I make sense of it. I'm, I'm still not sure if I'm off base. No, I think that that's fair. I think that that's very legitimate. Um, I don't think I'd have much more to add to that point because I, I, th- I, I agree. Okay, on, on that regard, um, we're kind of kind of running out of time, but there's still there's just so much to cover with Baudrillard, and we could probably do another podcast on this at some point. But I would say maybe one more question, just because I assume the people who have already gotten this far probably are keeners and are into theory. So for the listeners, what would you what would be the best way you would suggest to approach Baudrillard's text and how to understand what he says? Like, which text would you recommend first? What are the best ways to read them? And uh, which of your podcasts maybe could help understand some of those texts? Because I've listened to just about all of them. Uh, but which ones would you recommend to the listeners? Uh, of my stuff, probably the ones I did on The Perfect Crime, I think I was the most happy with. I also did those a lot of those Baudrillard episodes long ago when my production quality wasn't quite as good. But... As far as um, as far as books go, the perfect crime is a very good one. Does I would dare say even start with, but at least the first three chapters. Sure, it gets yeah. confusing after, in my opinion, very confusing after. Okay, well that's good to know. Then just stick to the first couple of chapters. Then probably the classics, Simulacra and Simulation. Um, you could try read them in order, but I think that might lead you astray. My my favorites are really probably seduction, symbolic exchange, and death for a critique of the political economy of the sign. And the mirror of production is quite good. I mean, I like them all. Uh, start with those ones. I think that that'll that'll give you a very good basis upon which to uh, approach some of the more difficult ones. And by more difficult ones. I mean, like fatal strategies, um, it, you know, I think the, the ones you mentioned, the I think the ones you mentioned are difficult. Like, honestly, oh, you're doomed I'll, no matter what you do. Yeah, I, I think I think perfect crime is the most intelligible, at least like the early the first few chapters anyway, until he gets into the irony of technology. And then after that, it gets kind of confusing. But uh, I, I think he has good chapters in the perfect crime that really illustrate it, like the illusion of the world or the height of reality, stuff like that. And I think the intelligence of evil, the one we kept referencing, the intelligence of evil is like really short. I, I, I find that one. There's not a single wasted sentence, in my opinion, especially in the, the chapter integral reality. I thought that's one where it, 
it explains sort of what you kept saying, the, the non-conflictual reality. I think that text is excellent. Uh, although, yeah, of course, sed- seduction is pretty important and symbolic exchange. But I find those are pretty difficult to read, uh, especially if one doesn't have a lot of background in French critical theory. Yeah, I think that that's that. I, I think that you're very right. Um, so, yeah, start with even the intelligence of evil, which is technically his last book. <laughs> but, you know, it, it is a, it is more accessible. Um, and I think that the same would follow with some of the other later essays like screened out or that compilation of essays. They really explain or that's where he really explains his disdain for arriving at perfection or trying to completely understand the world to put mystery illusion to death. That's where he really lays it out. Um, And then, yeah. And then that might allow you to better understand his earlier stuff, uh, understand what exactly it is about simulacrum that he disdains that troubles him so much. What is it about seduction that poses a challenge to those logics or reversibility poses a challenge to those logics of the simulacrum? Then yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, David, great having you on. This uh, I would, if it was up to me, I would keep this much longer. But for the sake of the audience and heads not exploding, but for now, I would highly suggest my audience to go check out your podcast, especially your Bodyard stuff and all that. You also have a, I believe you've written articles on Bodyard. Um, if you'd yes. like me to share them, I can do that as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so yeah, go check out David's stuff. And if you enjoy my podcast and the videos I do, uh, and you want to get access to exclusive podcasts as well, you can chip in a dollar or two on Patreon. That's very much appreciated. And yeah, hope you enjoyed. It's the excess, the outdoors of reality that puts an end to reality. The excess of information that puts an end to information. The excessive communication that puts an end to communication. Baudrillard's definition of the real itself is that which can be simulated, Xeroxed, and copied. So whether you're talking about a human body where you can make a holograph of it, or you're talking about the Bible which you can Xerox, or whether you're talking about the sexual act which can be simulated either through repetitive pornographic films or in a very near future it will be able to be uh, simulated with virtual reality where you'll wear a full body suit and uh, make love to your ego ideal thus making it pointless to uh, to search out all the Freudian implications you can just pick your ego ideal punch it into the laser beam program slip into the virtual reality suit thus rendering that relation, even that intimate relation, sexual relation, technological, simulatable, reproducible to infinity.